Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, so blessed to be here today on the Lord's Day, the, the day we celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead for the redemption of all those who would place their trust in him. Lord, we're grateful for your word, that we can study it. We are grateful for um, the Holy Spirit, that he can convict of sin and help us who are in Christ apply your word to our lives. And we are abundantly grateful for the fellowship of the saints, for the unity that is the body of believers, that we can be here stirring one another to love and good deeds. This morning, would you give us hearts that are focused on on your word? Would you allow us to put aside worldly distractions and and cares and thoughts that um, take the focus of our hearts away from the greatness and the surpassing glory that is your Son? It is, is in his name that we pray. Amen. The pandemic is not over. Don't believe what you hear in the news. Don't believe the so-called experts. It's not over. The reports on social media pundits that the pandemic is long gone are lies. In fact, the pandemic is getting worse. It's getting worse. But it's not the pandemic that you're thinking of. You see, the pandemic that I'm talking about, it can't be cured with a vaccine. It can't be cured with any medication. Social distancing doesn't help. You see, the pandemic I'm speaking of isn't a virus. The pandemic that I'm talking about is fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. You see, an estimated 24.7 million children in our country, one in three, live absent from their biological father. And one in four children don't even have a father in the home, putting them at great risk. You see, it's not just a problem that is an isolated one. It's not one that has no impact. You see, children who grew up without a father in the home are four times more likely to be in poverty. They are more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. They're two times more likely to drop out of school, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager. You know, one study found that 70% of youth in state facilities were from single-parent households. A study of 56 school shootings found that four of five of those shooters grew up without a father in the home. I was just in an event with our sheriff, Bill Wayborn, in Tarrant County last week, and he said that 90% of the people in our county jail either are addicted to substances, they were uh, brought up in organized crime, or grew up without a father in the home. You see, children need fathers. They need mothers and fathers, but these statistics don't bear out when you remove the father from the equation, though 80% of children that live in single-parent households uh, are with, are live with their mother, and their father is the one who's absent because of the importance of the father is demonstrated in this. You see, a father provides stability, the teaching and correction 
that is needed. The Corinthian church was caught up in division and immorality, and Paul has been focused on examples of service to, to show the humble service that he's engaged in and that they should be engaged in to build unity in the body. See, he gave the illustration of the farmer. And remember, Paul isn't any of these things. But he gave the illustration of the farmer who cultivates but relies on God for the growth. He gave the illustration of a builder who has a foundation and builds on a strong foundation. He gave the example of a steward, one who is entrusted with something. Christ entrusted Paul with the ministry to the Gentiles. And the Corinthian church is a Gentile, primarily a Gentile church, and Paul stewarded that gift that Christ gave him and used that as a picture. And today, Paul is going to, we're going to wrap up our study of the first section of 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters, before Paul really dives into his, his firm correction, where he's dealing with this problem of unity and divisiveness. Paul's going to wrap up this section with a final example the humble service of a father. You see, the Corinthian church was not a fatherless church. Paul was not going to allow it. Um, and so Paul is going to describe in our lesson today his father, fatherly service, and that is the title of our lesson. You can write down, if you're taking notes, Paul's fatherly service. And in this lesson, he is going to reveal three fatherly duties of a faithful servant. Three fatherly duties of a faithful servant. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Hopefully you're there already. And we're going to conclude chapter 4. Um, and let me read our text that starts in verse 14 and goes to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 4.14. Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I've sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in the church, everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with the spirit of love and gentleness? Paul this is, this is a very transitional part of this, of this letter because, one, Paul, Paul is concluding this section. He's also continuing his pattern of these illustrations. But this, this is transitional because in chapter 5, Paul is going to go dive headlong into his correction of the Corinthian church's rebellion. You'll remember Paul established this church and, and he left and he received ports of very troubling 
sin. Sin that, as we'll see in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, is sin that even the Gentiles don't engage in. And that is happening in the church at Corinth, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul loves this church. You know, we just sang the, the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and God has a deep love for us. But Paul, in establishing this church, has a deep fatherly love for them, a unique relationship. And that is our first point. A father establishes the family. The father establishes the family, and because, because he did so, Paul has this unique love. He starts out, our first sub-point is he established the church with a unique relationship. He says, church, he says, church at Corinth, you will have countless tutors in Christ. You'll have countless tutors in Christ. And that's true of all of us, too, who are in this room. If we're in Christ, there's plenty of people who will pour into our lives. You know, a tutor is just like a teacher. Um, I never had a tutor. I probably should have had one in math. I didn't get very good at that throughout my high school years. But a tutor is someone who comes alongside you and, and disciples you and helps you, helps you if, even if you're not struggling, just someone who helps make you better, right? And we have many tutors here in the Christian church. You know, Paul uh, in his letters describes the law as our tutor for those who are unsaved that leads us to Christ. It shows us our need for the gospel. But even in the Christian church, we have many tutors. And it can be anyone, anyone who's in Christ that helps us become more like our Lord. It could be friends, family, it could be authors who you've never met, speakers, books. Those things can tutor and disciple us to be like Christ, and we have many of them. You know, in our church, we even have programs to do that for, for, for not just youth, but for adults. We have the Partners Program, and adults, other people, come alongside those who want to grow in Christ and help us be more like Him. But though we have many tutors, and they help us in similar ways, there's a unique relationship for the person that if you're in Christ, helped bring you to a saving knowledge of Christ. You have this unique relationship. Um, I think back in my life, and there are people that stand out, and even one of them, I hadn't seen her in 12 years, and my wife and I went to visit my parents. We drove an hour and a half to our to college in Duluth, and we had lunch with her family, um, just because in, in the unique relationship of someone who, when I was lost, brought the truth of the gospel into my life. And you don't forget those people. And there's a unique relationship. Paul has that relationship that's irreplaceable with this Corinthian church. Now, some of you who are good students of Scripture may be thinking there's some tension here because we're told not to call anyone on earth father. And yet Paul is saying, you have many tutors, but... I'm your father in Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 8 through 12, said, don't be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you're all brothers. And here he says, don't call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who's in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader that is in Christ. You see, Jesus isn't just condemning those words. Right? It doesn't make any sense because Jesus had an earthly father. I don't think we have any records of him calling Joseph his father. Certainly talks about God as, God as, God as his father. But you, you don't hear when you say, say, hey, my dad or my father, and you don't, Justin isn't like, you know, if you keep doing that, we're going to put you under church discipline. Like the Bible says, like, don't call anyone on earth your father. 
You see, this, this passage continues where Jesus is talking about this in Matthew 20, 23. He says, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles of himself should be exalted. It is actually the members of the church at Corinth who are violating this command because they are elevating themselves, elevating people they've learned from, and doing it pridefully. The Corinthian church was making factions. They were showing partiality. They were acting out of pride and saying, Oh, I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. That is the same, that is saying, like, do not be called rabbi. Don't be called leaders, for one is your leader. They are not listening to Christ's command. So, so it's not that Paul in saying, I'm like, I'm your father in the gospel. Paul's not violating this. He's, he's not taking the place of Christ. He's not coming from a prideful angle. You actually see in this text, he's very humble throughout 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. You know, we can think in other examples of relationships we have with, with a group. Like, I love this youth group, but my love for my own children surpasses my love for all of you. And if you are given the gift of being a parent, you will feel the same way, that you love certain people in your life differently. And Paul is emphasizing to the Corinthians, we have this special bond and as I'm about to get very serious with dealing in the sin of this church, I want you to understand where I'm coming from. I'm not coming from a place of careless criticism where I just want to heap insults on you. No, I love you. We were here at the beginning. I founded this church. And because I helped found this church, I have this unique relationship that I care intimately about each and every one of you, and even enough to say hard things. So a father establishes the family, and he has a unique relationship. We also see that this fatherly relationship Paul had was established on the right foundation. It was established on the right foundation. You see, he was their father in Christ, Father in Christ. He loved the Corinthians enough. He preached the gospel to them when he was on his missionary journey. He could have just passed through Corinth. He could have preached the, preached the gospel to them and just saved some folks and then moved on and left. But he loved them enough to, to establish this church. When people were saved, he brought them together. He helped them find elders. He stayed for 18 months and did this. This is hard, long work. People got saved, and he was like, okay, let's, let's form a church so you're just not here alone. I'm going to invest my life towards you. And then once it was set up, he handed the church off to Apollos, who pastored the church, right? Paul, Paul planted the seeds, but he didn't stay there for the rest of his life. He moved on, and Apollos continued. He, he watered. He helped it grow. Not only did he establish this church on the right foundation, Paul established it with a proper motive. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. We, we didn't start right there, but he says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as, as my beloved children. Who can tell me what the theme of 1 Corinthians is? What's the theme of this book? Correction and condemnation. Correction and condemnation. Now, there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, 
jump down with me, just jump down to, to verse, verse 1 of chapter 5. Verse 1 of chapter 5. After, right immediately after this section we're studying on Sunday, or on Wednesday this week, um, we'll cover this chapter. Um, and Paul writes, It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And the next verse he says, you guys are disgusting. I can't believe it. And so I'm going to go tell everyone about it. And then I'm going to tell everyone how disgusting you are and to not associate with you. Is that what Paul did? Did he see their, their gross sin and say, I'm going to tell everyone about it so they won't hire you for a job, so that they won't let their kids hang around you? No. See, the motive we have in correcting and confronting someone matters a lot. It matters, I would say it matters just as much as confronting them. Because if we confront someone with the wrong motives, we can actually embolden them. We can have them dig in their heels and continue in their sin because they become hard-hearted. See, our culture, our, our, our world does, there's two things like cancel culture where it just shames and punishes people who trans transgress shifting cultural norms one day something something is totally um, accepted like boys are boys and girls are girls and two months later suddenly you can get fired from your job if you if you if you use the wrong pronoun no one thought about that three years ago but now that is a becoming trying to be a cultural norm. And what is the purpose of, of cancel culture like that? It's not restorative. It's not to make you better and to bring people together. No, it's to get people to not associate with you. It's to get people to not want to have anything to do with you. That's not what Paul is doing. He's not going to correct and condemn for the sake of scoring points with his social media followers or his best friend or his buddies. He's going to do it so he can not shame, but as our verse says, admonish. Admonishing someone is to counsel them about the avoidance of a behavior or the cessation of an improper course of conduct to, to bring them into behaving rightly. Not for any other reason, but for their own good and to glorify God. So we see that Paul has established this church. He, he founded them on the gospel and he wants them to understand that he has the proper fatherly motive. Just as any of your parents, when they correct you, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, their correction isn't confrontation for the purpose of making you feel bad. They, they, they see things that, quite candidly, they've probably all done before and said, that isn't going to end where you think it will. That's not going the way you want it to. It won't. Try this instead because this is what God says is right for us. So Paul, a father, establishes the church in our, in our picture. Next, Paul is going to show that a father teaches the family. A father doesn't establish, just establish the family and then let everyone run wild. No, a father teaches the family. He says, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I, just as I teach everywhere in the church. See, the first way a father teaches is by simple instruction. Go back to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. 
Paul said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and power. You see, when Paul established the church at Corinth, he didn't come and saying, listen guys, like you got, you're, a little, you're a little astray, I see there's some problems in your community, um, uh, I figured it out, see, I, I'm, I don't know if you heard about this, but uh, I was a Pharisee, um, but, but I grew up in, in, in Greece, so I'm kind of a little bit of both worlds, so I've got a good blend of ideas, and then I also, I got this cool title of Apostle. So I've also got this little mixture of this new trending Christian identity. So what I want to do is I want to mix all this together for you. And I want to give you some helpful pointers from what I've learned to help you get to where I am. I want to make you successful like me because clearly I'm doing okay. I've got three great titles. Nope, he didn't come to them with any of that. He said, listen, I have one message for you. It is the Messiah Jesus and him crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. He didn't proclaim the, the wisdom of the world. He proclaimed the wisdom of God and his mission to reconcile a people for his own son. That isn't what we expect today, and it isn't what we see in a lot of churches today. We see focus more on the style of the message. We see focus on the decor of the of the place we're meeting. We see focus on the music. We see focus on experience. You know, you go to most churches now, um, and they don't have a worship service. They have a worship experience because it's about you. How can I create a message in an environment that you will like so that you will come back? Paul wasn't worried about that because he knew the Holy Spirit would convict by his teaching and his instruction because his words were God's words. I, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen, we're not talking about anything else except what matters here, folks. Nothing except what matters, and that was Paul's focus. So he taught the word of God, but he didn't just teach it. You see, you guys go to school and whether it's school at home, whether you do kind of a hybrid thing, private school, public school, you're all getting instruction, and it's just, the, you're getting talked at, right? Even just like, just like now, I'm talking at you. And that's important. It's important to expound God's Word. It's, 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 a, it's important to learn math and have someone tell you about it. But if someone just tells you about a bunch of math, especially some of you are doing like calculus and like algebra two, stuff that I wasn't good at, right? I said I needed a tutor at the beginning of this. I don't really understand how it works. Um, but if no one shows you how to actually apply it, what use of it is to you? It's useless, right? The Pythagorean theorem, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even going to try to recite what it is. Um, I, I will get it wrong. Um, it's not in my notes. But... What, what is that for? Where would you apply it? Paul didn't just explain the theory. He also, B, he taught by example. He taught by example. Verse 16. 
of chapter 4, Paul says, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. And he's commanding it. He's not just suggesting. He's saying, you need to do this. Use me as your model. Paul spent a lot of time teaching, and he always, always strove for how he lived his life to actually match the words that came out of his mouth. And not that he did it perfectly, but that was his mission. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, be imitators of me because I figured it out, guys, so watch. No, that's not what he says. Be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. That is why Paul wanted so much for the Corinthian church to watch his life because the Christian is to imitate Christ. First, or Ephesians 5.1, he commanded the church to be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Why? Because Christ died for the church because he loves the church. The church wasn't worthy of Christ's sacrifice. The church is a mess. Just like this Corinthian church is a total mess. Christ didn't die for people because they were awesome. So he's like, I'll sacrifice myself for them. They're pretty great. And then they'll all talk about me. Paul didn't establish this church because, wow, the Corinthians, they're just, they're just fantastic people. So I'm going to set up this club because then they'll like me. And then I can come back and we'll have a good time talking about me and all the good stuff I've done and I can impart some new wisdom. No. See, the church is not worthy. We are not worthy. I am not worthy. You're not worthy of Christ's sacrifice. But he did it anyway. Christ died for the church, Ephesians 5, 26, with a purpose. And that purpose, the so that, Ephesians 5, 26, he died for the church so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. See, Christ died for the church so he could make her better. He didn't die for the church because they were great. He died for the church because they needed help. Because they needed help that only he could provide. Right? The church wasn't a thing. It was a bunch of lost people destined for hell. And Jesus said, you can't fix this on yourself. You're by nature sinners. All you can do is sin. Everything, all the ideas to fix yourself, to solve your situation, only produce more ruin and tears and sadness. But I have a solution. I will come and I will live the life as an example for you right? Teaching by example. I will live a life in his example for you and how you should live. And then to save you from the penalty that you have earned for yourself, I'm going to take all the punishment on me. I'm going to die. I'm going to take God's wrath. And if you put your trust in me and turn from your rebellion, that wrath, that punishment that should be poured out on you, I got it. Christ's death was to make rebels righteous. You know, a lot of us will ask, well, what's God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? Does he want me to be a surgeon? Does he want me to be a, a cook or a candlestick maker or whatever? You know, 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll get to this on Sunday nights, hopefully you're coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5 says this, For this is the will of God. The Bible actually answers the question. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
And then he continues in verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. You see, Christ lived out that life in his example. He also lived it out because we needed a righteous life. So we get that righteous life if we're in Christ imputed to us. That righteous life is also an example that we can live in and follow. See, Christ established the church by sending a spirit. Paul established, established this local church at Corinth. Christ gave his life quite literally so he could make the church holy, so he could sanctify them. Paul is pouring out his life, as he'll say in 2 Timothy, as a drink offering on behalf of the churches. Everything Paul is admonishing this church to do, Paul is careful as best he can by God's Spirit to live out in his own life. First, so he's not a hypocrite. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee, so he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to be the guy that says, do this, and then knowingly just go live in secret in the opposite manner. But second, he did it because he wanted the church that he planted to have a real living model to follow because it's one thing to read in a book it's one thing to have someone tell you something but it's another thing altogether to see someone and then model it no that's one of the ways that i learn best um i mean i always joke with jill that if we get something from ikea or target and there's like this weird diagram of how it's put together like it's not happening it's not getting put together but if there's a YouTube video, like I probably can figure it out. That's the same idea here. Paul says, listen, instruction's important. I'm going to teach you what to do, but I'm also going to live it out. I'm going to show it to you so that you can look at it and do the same thing so you can imitate me. We're all imperfect. We need to grow. Paul's not perfect. He's gonna have, he, have, he fails too. But as a, as a good teacher, Paul also knows that it's not just on him. He's going to thir- see, he's going to teach through others. Paul's not the only good example. You see, false teachers and heretics, they'll say, you have to look at me because I'm the only one that's figured it out. Don't look at these other people. They're going to pull you astray. Paul, he says, no, you know what? You can imitate me, but I can't be there right now. So, I am going to send you Timothy. I'm going to send you Timothy. And you can watch him too. For this reason, I've sent Timothy, who's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he'll remind you of my ways. In 2 Timothy 3.10, when we studied this a couple of years ago, he, he, he reminded Timothy as he was, Paul was preparing to die, and Timothy was preparing to take the lead, in these churches, he said, Now you followed my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Timothy, you've seen it all. You've been there alongside me. So do it. And Timothy, Timothy was becoming, as he was growing, he was able to, he was living that faithful life that Paul had taught and demonstrated. So Paul sends him to the Corinthian church. And he models these ways, which again, they're not Paul's ways. Notice he says, he's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ. My ways are in Christ. Timothy's ways aren't in Paul. 
They are in Christ. They have the same source. So he will remind you of them. And this wasn't a solution that was just for the Corinthian church. Notice how verse 17 ends. Just as I teach everywhere in the church. Have you ever been corrected by your parents or someone and you felt like they were holding you to a different standard? Ever told to stop doing something in your life? But, you know, they just, I mean, they were just doing that. Sometimes, like, it doesn't never happen to me, but you get pulled over, and they're like, well, how fast are you going? It's like, well, like, 30 seconds ago, I mean, someone just drove by me faster than I was going. Like, why don't you go get them? It's hard if you feel like you're being held to a different standard, and Paul is being clear that, hey, church, like, we're about to have some hard conversations, but I'm not putting you in a special category. This is how I teach everyone in the church. This is Christ's standards for every church, for every Christian. He wants them to know that because if you, if you know that you're not getting called out, if you're not getting reprimanded for something everyone else gets away with, then that's not, right, he's taking care of, of an objection that they would have so that they will receive his correction and the condemnation that's coming with a softer heart. That they, that they won't be looking around and be like, well, that, that, that Galatian church, Paul, I mean, they're, they're a mess. Like, why don't you go talk to them? You know what they're doing in the Galatian church? They, they believe a false gospel. Uh, and the church, the Thessalonians, I mean, they're, they, I don't know what's going on, but like you should see they're eating food sacrificed to idols. What's up with that? And Paul's like, no, 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 no. We're, this is the same message for every church. And we all have our different problems, but we're going to talk about you. You see, a father established the church, a father establishes their family, a father teaches the family, and thirdly, we see a father disciplines the family, and Paul is no different. Paul continues in verse 18, now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? See, this church was filled with division, pride, immorality. Some were emboldened, thinking, Paul's not coming back. I can do whatever I want. And like children whose parents are out for the evening and think they're not coming back until later or not coming back at all, their pride fueled their disobedience. Their pride feel their disobedience. Like, he's not coming back. He can't stop us. So we're going to do whatever we want. He's just going to write us another letter. So what? So Paul starts with a challenge in verse 19. You become arrogant and puffed up, thinking I will not come to you. He says, I will come to you if the Lord wills. And then we're going to see if you're going to put your money where your mouth is. See, some in the church thought Paul was just full of big talk. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 9, Paul says this, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they, for they, and this is, this is the third letter. We only have two of Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, but this is, this is the second one that we have a copy of. There are three in total. And Paul says, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. 
and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. See, they were like, Paul, you're all talk. Talk is cheap. He's like, you're right, it is. I'm coming, and it's going to be it's going to be tough. We're going to have a conversation, right? It's easy when your parent texts you something like, you know what, we're going to have a talk when you get home. You should knock that off. And you're like, oh, okay. And then they walk in the door and you can see on their face and they're like, mm, okay, like I probably, probably shouldn't have sent that text message. The Corinthians are probably like, yeah, we probably shouldn't have sent that letter. Um, we probably shouldn't have sent that guy because um, it's going to get a little rough. We see this all the time in sports too, right, at a press conference. But talk is, talk is cheap on both sides of the equation. Some of the Corinthian church think Paul's all bark and no bite. But this, that, this leads to resentment. Paul knew, which is why he promised the correction and why he was going to follow through. And so he, he challenges them, but then he is going to correct. He says, what do you desire? What do you want? I'm coming. If God wills, I will be there. And how do you want me to come? Should I come with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And that doesn't mean that like, hey, if you like get it together, I'm going to come and it's just going to be nice. It'll be comfortable. We'll just have a little chit chat, talk about um, the Olympics or like whatever else, sports, how, how the fishing's going doesn't mean like, hey, like I'm just going to forget about this if you just get on board. But there's a couple different ways that you can have a tough discipline conversation, right? There's the, there's the sit down like, hey, so let me, can you help me understand why you decided to do that? And like, what happened here? Corinthian church, how did you, how'd you figure out that it was okay to um, go and sleep with your, your mother-in-law, right? Like, help me figure that one out. Can you explain it to me? Or there's, you need to cut that out right now right? There's a hard conversation. I'm coming with discipline because I know you're not looking to hear reason. That's Paul's question here. Do you want to have a conversation about how we can correct this and I want to understand because I love you where we got off the ropes here? Or am I going to have to come in and just clean house and tell you what's up? See, discipline is training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character of a person. And Paul is ready to do a lot of it, because this church needs it. Discipline can look very different for different individuals. They can have different phases. You see, Paul was the student, uh, Paul's a student of the Old Testament. He loved this church, remember? He established it. And because he established this church, he has this unique fatherly relationship, where he just deeply cares for these people. He deeply cares for them, and he was a student of the Old Testament and was familiar with passage, passages like Proverbs thirteen twenty four that say, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him discipline, disciplines him diligently. And I actually, I actually really like the New Living Translation version of this text because it really it emphasizes, I think, Paul's heart and the heart of the father. It says, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. They care enough to discipline them. Worldly parents, if they love their kids, care enough to correct them when they do wrong things. My kids love to go in the pool. 
They just, I have a two-year-old. She'd just jump in there if I didn't watch her while I care enough to help her not kill herself, right? I care enough to be like, you know, that's a bad idea. So don't go by the pool if you don't got your water rings on. And now she walks around and like points at her shoulders, right? If she didn't have her water rings on. Mostly that's Jill doing that because they swim in the pool all the time. But we love our kids. So we say, hey, you know what? That's going to end up bad for you. So you should not do that. And here's why. And you know what? If she didn't listen, like the discipline would be not the kind, loving instruction. It would be the, okay, there's going to be a rod. There's going to be a consequence. Paul's the same way. God's the same way with his church, and this is off topic, but this goes hand in hand with evangelism, you know. If we really believe that we're not, if, if apart from Christ, someone is destined to an eternity of hell, and, and we don't want to do the uncomfortable task of confronting them with that reality and explaining that there, there is, a, is a way of escape, we must truly hate the lost. Think about that. If you, were, if you truly are sitting here today and you know what? If you don't believe in Christ alone for salvation of sins, and then you're like, but if I told that to people I don't know, I think I'm kind of weird. How much do you have to hate that person to not be uncomfortable for the sake of saving their soul or providing them the, the opportunity for escape? How much would, would an oncologist, a cancer doctor, have to hate his patients to be like, man, you know, Sam's got stage four lung cancer. But that's going to be a really tough meeting when he comes in. So I'm just not going to tell him. Just easier to talk about. I mean, hopefully he doesn't like UT. I don't know. Um, just talk about the football game. Right? If we love people, we're going to care enough to, to do the hard things to help point them in the right direction. And Paul didn't invent this application to the church. He, he knew it was true of our Heavenly Father. Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. You see, God, our heavenly father, will discipline us to steer us back towards Christlikeness. And we're about to see some shocking sins that are happening in this church. This isn't an exhaustive list, but this, this church, this group of believers at Corinth, they were engaged in incest, fraud, other legal disputes, drunkenness, sexual immorality, homosexuality. They were engaged in factions and pride. These are heinous sins. Heinous sins that people, they would say, I'm a follower of Christ, and I'm doing what fill in the blank. They're engaged in high-handed rebellion, not against Paul like they thought. They're like, yeah, you go show up, you come talk to me, Paul, whatever. They weren't sinning against Paul. He's like, who am I? I just told you the truth. You're not sinning against me. You're sinning against God. Paul makes this point in chapter 5 that they should be concerned not even over these great sins, but even smaller ones. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting of your sin is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So even, like, even you in the Corinthian church, you're not doing those things, but you're like gossiping about them. You're thinking, oh, I'm not doing those things. I'm feeling pretty good. Even a little sin can ruin a church. Just like even a little bit of leaven, it, it affects the entire lump of dough, right? So Paul is a loving father. He established the church, not for his sake, but for the sake of Christ. You commissioned him to the task. So for the sake of Christ, he taught the church. For the sake of Christ, when they stray, he's going to correct 
And when they stray severely, he's going to discipline this church. Why? Not because he likes to do it, but because he loves Christ and he loves this church who he has a unique relationship with. You see, Paul knew that fatherlessness was destructive. Didn't need a 21st century anthropologist to go do a study and publish it in a medical journal to say, wow, fatherlessness is a problem. And it's actually interesting right now because you have our whole world, again, you get, you're getting this one for free. We have this whole, our whole world is falling apart. There aren't boys and girls anymore. And then there's just, there's a, a guy that writes for the New York Times who's super liberal that's about to polish a book talking about the problem of fatherlessness. Well, who's mad about that? All the feminists and all the trans, trans activist groups because they're like, there's no gender, or they're saying, oh, but women can do this all on their own. And they're like, but the data says that all of these mostly boys that grew up in fatherless homes are in bad, bad trouble. And we need to figure out how to help it. Paul knew that that would be true for a church if they didn't have that fatherly, kind guidance, that they would run into the same problems. So having now dealt with their disunity, in the coming chapters, Paul is going to deal directly with their sin, and it will be hard. It will be a hard confrontation, but Paul is doing it for their ultimate good. So how should we respond? How should we react to this illustration of Paul's fatherly servant-heartedness to this church? I think the first one is very, should be very easy to see, and it's not clear it's not commanded in the text but for us here i think we need to understand that when our parents correct us we should understand it's a demonstration of their love not a demonstration of their desire to ruin our lives they discipline us because justin mentioned this on wednesday like did all the things that they're disciplining you for so like we know like there's some experience and foolishness that you could avoid right that's what the desire is to impart most of the time. Parents aren't perfect. Paul's not perfect. But let's understand and appreciate that when we receive correction, even from parents, from other authority figures too, teachers, other folks in the church that say, hey, quit running through the, the flower bed, right? Okay, well, instead of being angry and talking back, they're like, okay, well, I mean, one, I know I'm not supposed to do that, and two, I'll just obey because it's wise. Second, God's command for holy living is serious. It's serious enough that he sent his own son to die for our sins. But, and it's serious enough that he loves us enough for those of us who are in Christ to bring discipline into our lives. To correct us and to point us back into living a holy life for God. Thirdly, and I think this is really important. Um, because you'll see a lot of times, especially you have, have that friend, and they like go through a breakup, right? And then their Instagram stories change, not to pictures of them being all like wonderful and loving, but it's all like, um, oh, like look for people in your life who will affirm you and like keep you, like celebrate your unique gifts to the entire world because you're so great, right? And it's like, well, is that what we should look for? Like, oh, I just went through this hard time. So look for people who make you feel super special. Now, I think that we need to seek people to come into our lives who will lovingly hold us accountable and won't just 
reaffirm what our hearts tell us about ourselves, but will kindly enjoy life with us. But when we are in the hard moments and we can't see when we're causing problems, either interpersonally or having serious sin in our lives, that they'll point us back to Christ. They'll point us to the truth and say, hey, you know, I know that was a really hard season of life you went through, but, you know, these things happen. But actually, when, when, when this event occurred, you know, I don't think it was honoring to the Lord. And I think, actually, if you would have responded in this way, you wouldn't be where you are right now. And so I'm just going to encourage you to, like, put off that sin, to put off that pattern of behavior. It's not fun to hear, but the fruit of listening to that and then living out the correction will produce joy. Because, you know, the, Bi- the Bible says obedience brings joy. Great Bible verse if you've got kids. Um, but it's also great to apply to yourself, too, because obedience does bring joy, ultimately. It might not bring worldly fun and pleasure, a lot of times it won't, but obedience brings joy, and that joy is in Christ, who's ours, and who lived the life to bring us that joy. If we will put our heart and trust in Him, let's pray. God, thank you so much for Christ. Thank you that you are our heavenly Father. Thank you that even if we have worldly fathers who are absent, if we have worldly fathers who are sinful and bad and do not do, do not follow these examples. God, thank you that we ultimately have a Father that we can look to because you love us, you care for us, you want our best. You don't take delight in the punishment and death of the wicked. You desire all to come to a knowledge of your Son, to experience the joy that he purchased through us, for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Would we even today place our trust in that promise? For the praise and glory of his name. Amen.